Well, good morning. It's a privilege and pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm thankful to Daniel for this invitation to preach on chapter 3, which we skipped earlier in the series. Um, And so I was honored when he asked, but of course he didn't tell me it was Spring Forward Sunday, did he? So I see how it is. In fact, you all who came to the second service, you got a little extra sleep, but you missed... You missed an epic battle between me and my mask and this microphone uh, right before I was about to preach. I had to have a special assist from, from Daniel Mace. He had to come up and help me. And uh, so I'm thankful to Josh and Kaike for, for helping me through this one to, to get the mask off without an, an embarrassing situation happening again. I'm just going to blame it all on the spring forward Sunday. Uh, so we're here with uh, Daniel chapter 3, and I'd like to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm reading Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 to 23. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall bow bow down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the god? Who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. 
speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. You may be seated. So, Daniel 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is a famous one. It's one that's commonly told to children. I, I, I first heard it as a child, as a young child in church growing up in Sunday school. And that, those two qualities, popular stories told to kids, though, that's not a bad definition of a fairy tale like those collected by the Brothers Grimm in the early 1800s. Cinderella was originally a Brothers Grimm fairy tale, and so was Snow White and Rumpelstiltskin and a whole host of others, including Little Red Riding Hood. Now, I suppose you remember Little Red Riding Hood, but the original version from the Brothers Grimm is a bit more, well, grim. In the original, the wolf successfully devours not only Grandma, but also Little Red. And after he has, and this is a direct quote, the fat chunks of these two in his body, he falls asleep and starts snoring. That attracts the attention of a huntsman wandering nearby who not only has amazing hearing, but also has incredible foresight to not shoot the wolf dead, but instead cut him open. Amazingly, the wolf does not wake up during this rather invasive exploratory surgery. And even more miraculously, both Little Red and Grammy, who were fat chunks a moment ago, now emerge from the wolf completely unscathed. It's like a Brothers Grimm Christmas miracle, isn't it? Grams and Red quickly fill up the wolf's belly with heavy stones. Dr. Hunter closes him up. And so when the wolf finally wakes up, he immediately falls over and dies. That's the original version of the Brothers Grimm. And you can tell it's a little bit gruesome, at least if you ask me. Not exactly a sweet bedtime story for a toddler. The same holds true, actually, for a number of other well-known fairy tales. In a way, they really aren't fairy tales at all. Fairies don't really show up very often in them, and they are far cry, at any rate, from the pastel-colored Disney versions replete with a cast of adorable characters, all of whom can sing so well, can't they? I mean, even The Rock in Moana. Am I right? I mean, amazing. Thank you, Disney, for that. You're welcome. Thank you. That was a good, that was a little Moana joke. Somebody got it over here, y'all. Somebody got it over here. I think the same holds true, actually, for Daniel chapter 3. It may be a famous story, but when we look at it closely, we find it is actually no less grim than something like Hansel and Gretel or Little Red Riding Hood. Daniel 3 is a very serious story about political oppression, inspiring civil disobedience, and in the end, a stunning deliverance. That stunning deliverance is probably why chapter 3 is so popular, but what comes before that famous miracle deserves careful consideration. It is, at the very least, uber-dramatic. The chapter begins with the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, making a massive gold statue. He sets up the statue with great pomp and circumstance. It's, it's practically a 4th of July celebration on the National Mall. Everybody there, including an amazing band. And when the music starts, everyone is to hit the floor, quite literally, bowing down to the statue. It's a flashy celebration for sure, but with a seriously dangerous side. Worship the gold statue or else, says the state, or else you die by being burned alive in a fire. Well, that's one way to ensure obedience, isn't it? And obedience is what King Nebuchadnezzar wants, and it works. 
The band strikes the chord and everyone, I mean everyone, according to Scripture, all the peoples, nations, and languages, all of them bowed down on cue and worshipped the gold statue. Well, let me take that back. Not everyone, right? Everyone except a few Jews. Three, to be exact. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three young men, perhaps college-aged or so, we don't really know. What we do know is that these three didn't belong in Babylon. They were exiles, refugees, that is, ripped from their homes and forcibly resettled to Babylon by, guess who? Yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't even their real names. Their real Hebrew names were Hananiah, which means the Lord has been gracious, Mishael, which means who is like God, and Azariah, which means the Lord has helped. But the Babylonians ripped their names from them just like they did their homes. The new names they were given no longer referred to their own God, the Lord God of Israel, but to the state gods of Babylon. I imagine they must have hated those names. Just like they hated that gold statue. But Nebuchadnezzar's statue isn't their only problem. The Chaldeans were also out to get them. The word Chaldean refers to a type of religious official, the kind of people that Daniel showed up big time in chapter 2. So the Chaldeans know that their privileged political position is threatened by Jewish exiles like Daniel and his friends. They're looking for a way to get back on top, making the king aware of how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to kowtow to the king's latest ego project seems like the perfect way to do it. And they are Right. When he learns about it, Nebuchadnezzar turns violent and angry, and he has these three young Jewish boys brought to him. He repeats his royal decree directly, this time to their face. Worship the gold statue when the music plays, boys, he tells them. Or else. Or else that furnace of flaming fire over there. And should it come to that, the king asks, what God could possibly save you from my hand? So that's the scene. On one side is all the power and anger and madness of King Nebuchadnezzar, supported by an entire world bowing down on his command with the musicians playing some cacophonous but probably fairly catchy tune, the monstrous statue looming above, the Chaldeans scheming behind the scenes, live-tweeting the whole thing with the Facebook feed probably blowing up. All of that bearing unbearably down on the other side, which is comprised of just three young men, refugees, ripped from their homes, ripped of their names, and set down there in a foreign land in front of that despotic king, hearing that music, seeing all those people, that statue, those gods. 
But listen to this. These boys are ready for it. It won't be easy, of course. It never is when the odds are so incredibly stacked against you. And things probably won't go their way. I mean, let's be honest. Things probably won't go their way, but they are ready for it nevertheless. They have prepared for this sort of thing, you see. They've been practicing for it. They've been faithful in ways large and small, from refusing to worship that statue to watching every single thing, every little bit of food they ate, making sure to avoid all unclean things, even in exile, which ain't easy. The entire Babylonian world is bearing in unbearably on them, especially that insane king who demands loyalty or death. But these three boys are ready for it. They are brave with a boldness that is stunning. It's downright unworldly, if you ask me. We don't need to answer your question, the boys say to the king. I mean, that right there is enough to sign the death certificate, right? But they are just getting warmed up. It, if our God, the one we serve, they continue, but, but let's not go any further than that. In fact, let's slow down, maybe rewind and replay that. Did you catch what they said? Our God, they tell the king, not your God, Nebuchadnezzar, and definitely not your God's, plural. No, no, no. Our God, they say. And they're quick to emphasize that our God is the one we serve, which means we serve that God, our God, and none other, Nebuchadnezzar, and definitely not your gods. I mean, there's a lot going on in this response, and we're only a couple words in. But we mustn't miss the first little word that starts it all off. If, they say, if our God, these young men say, is able to rescue us from the furnace of flaming fire and from your power, then let him rescue us. If, they say. If means the situation isn't certain. If is hypothetical. It may not go down that way. In fact, in this particular case, it's very hard to believe it will. They are just three young refugees, after all, completely tiny and unimpressive in the middle of this massive celebration with the world's greatest superpower bearing down on them unbearably. And that isn't even to mention that furnace over there. It is blazing. But the boys are still not done responding to Nebuchadnezzar's demands. But if our God doesn't rescue us, they continue, know this for certain. <laughs> you got to give it to these kids, right? They got guts. Know this for certain, your majesty. We will never serve your gods or bow down to the gold statue that you've set up. Well, I don't, I don't know about you, but that's enough to inspire me for a bit, at least a couple days, if not longer, maybe even a lifetime. I mean, just think about the faithfulness of those three young Jews standing resolute against an oppressive government that wants to bend everything, even worship to itself. And think of them doing that under the pain and penalty of death. This story is, is definitely no fairy tale. 
It's far too serious and far too deadly. But, but if you ask me, it's a story that is incredibly relevant to the Christian church, even and perhaps especially right about now. We too, I think, are constantly tempted to lay our faith down, to compromise with the powers that be, to confuse the God we serve with the ones that seem to be running the show. The music and musicians, the schemers, the crowds, the politicians, the moneymakers. And make no mistake about it, these demands to capitulate, to compromise, come at us from all sides, every angle, including on every part of the ideological spectrum, left and right, progressive and conservative. Nothing was more conservative in the ancient world than worshiping lots of different gods and doing so by means of idols. And nothing would have been more progressive than these Jews to abdicate their faith and join in with the Babylonian crowd. But however you see it, it's clear regardless that Nebuchadnezzar at the top of the food chain, he's a good old-fashioned narcissistic power monger, isn't he? Who will brook no rivals and stomach no disloyalty. These three Jews are at best the tiniest, tiniest disruption in the massive machine of the Babylonian state. But they are infuriating to someone like Nebuchadnezzar. They're infuriating because with all his unlimited power, Nebuchadnezzar can't force them to obey. His unlimited power is, in the end, quite limited. Kind of funny how it works that way sometimes, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar's only option, his only way out is to kill these boys for showing everyone the limits of his earthly power. And it's not funny in the least that that's often the case. There's an important word here, I think, for Christians, even and perhaps especially right about now. Sometimes, Daniel 3 tells us, Christians must resist Sometimes they must disobey the powers that be. Now maybe you know Romans 13 in the New Testament, especially a famous verse in that chapter that says that every authority has been put in place by God. And so everyone must submit to every authority, including the government. That's an important verse, a nice verse. It's a verse for another sermon to be sure. But all we need to do is read Daniel 3 to see that Romans 13 doesn't always apply. Sometimes Daniel 3 is what applies. Sometimes the right thing is not to submit to every authority, especially, especially an authority that is set up against our God, the one we serve. Now at the end of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sort of comes around. Not really. I mean, he still doesn't really get it. But after witnessing the miracle in the furnace, he, he issues a second decree. This one doesn't require worship of his own statue. I mean, 
clearly there are exceptions to that rule, but it is instead about the religion of these three young Jews, how no one should speak disrespectfully about their God. Get this, again, upon pain of death. So what's changed in Nebuchadnezzar? Not much. He may appear to respect Israel's God, but in truth, he's the same ruler underneath, a a despot who specializes in death threats, whatever the situation. As As if the God who can deliver from the fiery furnace needs Nebuchadnezzar's help to get work done. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know And their story reminds us that we worship the true God, the God of heaven, not one of political expediency. And not one of physical security either, let alone material prosperity. Let me say that again. The true God, the God of heaven, is not one of political expediency or physical security or material prosperity. Remember, the three boys can't be sure that God will save them if our God is able to rescue us, they say. They seem uncertain about any rescue, maybe unsure about God's ability to rescue them, but perhaps also unsure about God's desire to rescue them. But listen to this. They're faithful nevertheless, despite any and all uncertainty. They faithfully disobey the empire. They faithfully resist the religion of political expediency and physical security and material prosperity, come what may. Well, I'm inspired, but Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. He can't stand it any longer. He heats the furnace beyond reason and has the three young men thrown in. He doesn't even care that some of his own soldiers die in the process. And then comes a famous miracle, the one that makes Daniel 3 so famous. Nebuchadnezzar jumps up from his seat where he had hoped to enjoy another gruesome spectacle proving his unmatched power because he's sure he's seen things wrong. He rubs his eyes again to check because instead of smoldering bodies, he sees three people walking around unbound in the fire. And then he sees more. A fourth figure who looks, the king says, like one of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar calls for the boys to come out. And when they do, scripture says, the fire hadn't done a thing to them. Their hair wasn't singed. Their garments looked the same as before. They didn't even smell like smoke. These three young boys weren't sure their God was able to deliver them. But God was. And God did. A fourth figure showed up in that fire with those brave refugees that had had so much ripped from them. Evidently, God had had enough. God would not allow their lives to be ripped from them also. So, that's the story. The madness at the start of the chapter and the miracle at the end of the chapter. And in between, faithful resistance. All three are found in the world of Daniel 3. And I wonder, I wonder now about our world. 
I suspect that most of us live our lives, most of our lives, in between. After the madness of our world and its leaders bent on their own glory and with no real regard for God, who pose a real, even deathly threat to us in our faith. After all that madness, but often, and maybe almost always, before any miracle of deliverance. In between, madness and miracle is where we spend most of our days. We want to believe that God can save us from the madness and the threat, move us towards miracle and deliverance, but if we're honest, we probably aren't always sure about that. And we definitely aren't always confident about that, that God will do that. It remains to be seen, after all, because, you see, we are in between. It's interesting but not surprising to see that these observations, this dynamic of Daniel chapter 3 can also be seen in the life of Christ, which we're focused on during the Lenten season. There is first the madness of Herod and Pilate and so many others who will see Christ's life and get it on Friday. And after that madness, there's the unexpected miracle On Sunday, Jesus' in-between is Saturday. Holy Saturday is what we call that day in the Christian tradition. It's that interminably long day between the madness of Good Friday and the miracle of Easter Sunday. In-between is Saturday. Well, Saturdays are nice, but they aren't always fairy tales, are they? Not if we think that means that the heroes always win and escape unscathed. Jesus' life is cruelly taken from him. He is executed by the state and he lies dead in a borrowed tomb all Saturday long. No, no fairy tale there. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego may end up unsinged, but they don't escape the fiery furnace. No, they survive it. And escaping and surviving are two very different things. So, no, Saturdays aren't always fairy tales. Instead, they are the long, difficult times that come in between. After the madness of our world and before, sometimes long before any sign of hope, let alone any experience of miraculous deliverance, in between madness and miracle is Holy Saturday. That's the time for resistance. That's the time for faithfulness. The three young Jews in Daniel chapter 3 knew this. They resisted the madness of Nebuchadnezzar even when they weren't sure about God's ability or willingness to save them. That, That didn't matter. What mattered, what mattered is that they were convinced. They were persuaded They had practiced for such a time as this. They knew what to say and what to do, how to live, and how to die. And Jesus knew this too. As he stood before Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate, as he resisted so many opportunities to shirk his task and instead remained faithful, even if it wasn't clear if or when or how deliverance might 
take place. He knew what to say and what to do, how to live, and how to die. And the women who followed him knew this also. According to St. Luke, after Jesus died, these faithful women rested on the Sabbath according to the holy commandments. They were in between, you see? After the madness of the cross and before the miracle, the only thing to do is to remain faithful, resisting all that would compromise such faithfulness, even to the point of death. But all that, all that inspiring stuff, all that was back then in their world, back in Bible land, right? I wonder now, then, about our world, about our land. I wonder now about us. Do we know these things like they did? Do we know what to do here and now in between after madness that is all around us and and before God's miraculous deliverance, whatever that may be? Do we know what to do and what to say, how to live, how to die? I worry about that. I worry about that a lot. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew. So did Jesus, and so did his faithful followers. As for us, well, it remains to be seen if you and I will be numbered with them or instead be counted with the rest of the world that surrounds King Nebuchadnezzar and bows down as soon as the music plays. May God have mercy on us. May God strengthen us in all goodness. And may the Holy Spirit keep us in eternal life. Amen.